0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through verse 58. Our background is this, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking solely about the resurrection of the dead. The first 11 verses, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then in the next section of chapter 15, he talks about the resurrection of Christians, tying the resurrection of Christ and the resurrections of Christians together. Logically, you don't have one without the other, he says, the next Section of chapter 15, he talks about the practical results of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. And now in our last passage, he's going to talk about the resurrection of the dead and the nature of the resurrected body. He talked about that a little bit in the last audio, too, the nature of the resurrected body. So we'll start in verse 50, First Corinthians 15, and we read this. Brothers, Paul says, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and corruption cannot inherit in corruption. Notice that Paul is still calling the Corinthians brothers, despite the fact that they've got a screwy idea of resurrection of the dead. Some of them do, at least. They're entertaining false so-called super apostles who are teaching heresy. They've screwed up the Lord's Supper and defamed it. They've divided themselves up into factions. They've, They've turned their church worship into total chaos as they talk on top of each other with tongues and prophecy. They are enamored of Greek wisdom and rhetoric to the exclusion of the Holy Spirit and they have just about screwed everything up known to man they didn't exercise church discipline over somebody who's sleeping with his mother-in-law or his, excuse me his stepmother it's really hard to think of anything they were doing right and Paul, but Paul kept calling them brothers again the point is he, and he does this all the way through the books of first and second Corinthians the re, why does he do that because he hasn't given up on them yet they're Christians they're saved they're just extremely immature and carnal. So Paul says, Brothers, I tell you, this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is a famous, favorite verse of hyper heretics who say that we are not going to have a physical resurrection of the body. They have different views on what the resurrection is, but usually it's a, some kind of a ghostly resurrection. We, we end up with a spiritual body, a ghostly body in heaven, but we won't have a flesh and blood body in heaven. Folks, that is not what this verse means. Means it absolutely does not mean that resurrected bodies won't be physical bodies. They will be physical bodies. Let's read First Corinthians 14:40. They are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. Now, in that verse, Paul is contrasting the bodies that we have now on this earth, the ones that are planted in the grave at our funerals. And then he's talking talking about heavenly bodies, those are resurrected, glorified, immortal bodies, and notice that they are bodies, B-O-D-I-E-S. He said there are heavenly bodies, B-O-D-I-E-S, flesh and blood bodies, folks, and earthly bodies, those bodies, of course, there's no argument over that. We know that bodies we have today are flesh and blood, but those Current flesh and blood bodies are contrasted with future heavenly bodies, B-O-D-I-E-S. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies, B-O-D-I-E-S, is different from that of earthly ones, earthly bodies. So Paul very clearly says that we're going to have bodies in heaven, and for people to deny that they are just, I don't know how to say this politely, they're heretics. They're damnable heretics. But then, if they're wrong about saying that we're resurrected as some kind of ghost... What does it mean when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? Obviously, Paul's not going to contradict here in verse 50 what he says in the last chapter in verse 40, where he says there are heavenly bodies. Well, what does it mean? Well, here's what the NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark say it means. It means we're not going to, this kind of body will not inherit the kingdom of God. Perishable, corrupt, weak, and sinful bodies won't inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what he means. He just means ordinary bodies like we have now, our ordinary flesh and blood bodies won't inherit cause we're gonna, it because when we get there, in glory, is, our bodies are going to be elevated to a higher level, but they're still going to be bodies. They just won't be perishable, corrupt, and weak and sinful. Paul's whole point here is that there's a huge difference between our mortal bodies and resurrected bodies. Our mortal bodies would break into pieces and crumble into dust in the presence of God, as John Gill says. Let's go back to this idea of brothers. I'm going to give you a side point here. Paul says, "Brothers, I tell you this." Why does he say brothers instead of brothers and sisters? Because he knows that the brothers are responsible for this huge mess that they created in Corinth. He was not going to blame the sisters for it because the sisters weren't responsible for it. You know, feminists are always talking about they ha- should have equal privileges with men in the in the aspect of leadership. Well, if that's so, then they, then the sisters also have. Equal responsibility when things go wrong. Like, it, for example, in the Garden of Eden. And who did Paul blame in the Garden of Eden? Eve or Adam and Eve or just Adam? Read Romans 5. It was just Adam. We go now to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Listen, Paul continues, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. All right, when Paul says he's telling them a mystery, he's using mystery in a peculiar Pauline sense. The word mystery back then referred to mystery religions, and these mystery religions would have all kinds of secret rituals and and slogans and and ceremonies and rituals and such that were only known to the initiates. For example, the Eleusinian mysteries in Eleusis and Athens, people to this day don't know what those Eleusinian mysteries were because they were hidden from the public. Only the initiates would know. But Paul is using the sense of mystery in the sense of something that was hidden in the past but is now revealed. I mean, he says, I am telling you a mystery. Listen, if it was a real mystery in the sense of an ancient mystery religion, there wouldn't be anybody telling what that mystery was. But Paul is saying, no, mystery was hidden before it's revealed. And it's easy to show this. There's lots of other times he uses that term mystery. I won't go into them now. But all through the New Testament, he uses that. Now, we need to be careful here. A lot of times people will say, well, you know, the Trinity is a mystery. Or the hypostatic union, the divine nature and the human nature of the person of Jesus is a mystery. When you say a mystery that way, that's a theological mystery. That's something, something we'll never understand. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He perfectly well understands, expects the Corinthians to understand this mystery about the resurrection of the dead. So we need to be very, very careful in the use of that word, mystery. Now, he says we will not all fall asleep. That means we will not all die. It means at the end of time, when, when the last trumpet sounds, when Jesus comes back, we're not all going to fall asleep, but but we all will be changed. So if you happen to be still living when Jesus comes back, your body will be changed. And and again, the, go, looking at the context, that means it will be changed from mortal to immortal, from corruptible to incorruptible, corruptible from perishable to imperishable. Now, notice that Paul still thinks highly enough of the Corinthians to tell them this mystery. As John Gill points out, he's called them brothers, and he's going to teach them. Despite all the criticism he's been given them, he's going to tell them this mystery. And this was a mystery because the Jews had, Jews had no distinct notion of this, as Adam Clark says. Now, I will say this. The Jews did have a concept of the resurrection of the body. That was known in the Old Testament, but it wasn't clear and distinct. Let's put it that way. And I'm going to give you some examples here. Abraham believed that Isaac would be raised from the dead. In Hebrews 11:19, we read this. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, that's Isaac, from the dead. Abraham knew that God could raise Isaac from the dead. So therefore, Isaac knew something about the resurrection of the body. And that was in the Old Testament. And Jesus implied that Moses knew about the resurrection. Now, this verse doesn't prove it, but it does imply it that Moses knew about the resurrection, Luke 20, verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, this is Jesus speaking, he's quoting Exodus 3, verses 6 and 15, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, that's the burning bush passage in Exodus 3, verses 6 and 15, well, Moses showed that There was an afterlife, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in that afterlife. You could argue, or one could argue, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were ghosts in the afterlife. So it doesn't directly prove the resurrection of the dead. But, I mean, Jesus is talking about, in this passage, he's talking about the resurrection. He's talking to the Sadducees, saying, hey, there's going to be a resurrection. So if he's using this verse to show that the Sadducees, that there's a physical resurrection, I'm sure that Moses, it certainly implies that Moses knew that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were going to be physically resurrected in the kingdom of God. And here's a final piece of evidence that the Old Testament Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees taught the resurrection of the dead openly. The Pharisees were not really, they were before Christ, they were not in the Old Testament. But where did the Pharisees get the idea of the resurrection of the dead if they didn't get it from the Old Testament? However... Even though there are hints of of knowledge of the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament, they generally didn't know it too well, and Paul's telling it to them straight. He's teaching clearly about the resurrection of the dead. And you know, all those fancy Greek philosophers that the Corinthians were quoting all the time, they didn't understand the resurrection of the dead either. So these Corinthians were in a a very privileged place. 1 Corinthians 15.52, Paul continues, In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. That's the end of a sentence. Let me give you the first of the sentence in verse fifty one. We will not all fall asleep, but we will be all be changed. Verse 51, fifty-two. We shall all be changed. Verse fifty two in a moment, in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. That of course means being changed from a lowly, sinful, weak, mortal, corruptible, perishable flesh fleshly body to a glorious immortal, imperishable, incorruptible, fleshly body. That's how we're going to be changed. Now, what does Paul mean when he says it's going to happen at the last trumpet? Well, NIV Study Bible suggests that the last trumpet is the one that's mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, verse 31. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the end of the sky to the other. Now, I don't believe this because I take an orthodox preterist view of the Olivet Discourse. I take the view that those angels, the Greek word is angelos, means messengers. He will send out his messengers, and that means he's talking about, and they will gather his elect. That's talking about the preachers of the gospel that went out all over the Roman world, gathering the elect from the four corners of the Roman Empire, from the four winds, and that has nothing to do with the end of the world and the resurrection of the body. If you think otherwise, well, you can take your theology and run with that. I, I don't think so. I don't think that's what it's talking about. So here's another option, the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11. Remember the trumpet judgments, the horrible, I think the seventh trumpet, if I remember correctly, led to the seven chalices of wrath. <laughs> and again, I, I take an orthodox preterist view of Revelation, of the whole book of Revelation, uh, mo- the first part of the book of Revelation. So all that seventh trumpet is talking about judgment going, falling on apostate Israel. After all, all those events that are talked about, including the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, all those tru- uh, events that were talked about were said to be coming soon, coming soon, coming soon. What part of soon do we not understand? The last trumpet didn't happen soon. It's already been a couple thousand years and there not been a last trumpet yet. So I don't think that's what it is. Here's the third option. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, now, that certainly sounds like the trumpet that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15:52, our verse, because it's talking about the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead ties those two trumpet instances together. Now, if that's the case, and this trumpet is connected with the resurrection of the dead at the end of time, what is it? Well, it's probably a metaphor. John Gill says this, quote, What this last trumpet will be is not easy to say. It can hardly be thought to be a material one. And I agree with that. But if it's not a material trumpet, it's a metaphor for what? Well, John Gill says it could be a metaphor for the voice of Christ. I don't believe that. It could be violent, a metaphor for violent claps of thunder when the bodies are raised. I don't know where he gets that idea from. I don't believe it. It could refer to the assembling of the people. The people will assemble in the resurrection throng, just as assembling was done for the solemn feast of Israel when the trumpets were blown That was their custom. That was their law, actually. The trumpet was blown when it was time for a feast. And this would be kind of like a a resurrection feast, a harvest feast, a feast of tabernacles, if you will. Well, that's very nice. I don't know what it means, but it's associated with the coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Adam Clark says that Paul is using Jewish terminology Quote, this, as well as all the rest of the peculiar phraseology of this chapter, is merely Jewish. And we must go to the Jewish writers to know what is intended. On this subject, the rabbins use the very same expression. On the subject of the resurrection of the dead, they talk about trumpets. Now, if Jesus is talking like Jews did, and the Jews were not talking about a literal trumpet, then that means that Paul's not talking about a literal trumpet either. here. here. I'm not going to get in a big argument with that. Maybe it's just a squealing of the... and the sound in the sky that's going to sound like a trumpet to announce to everybody that big things are happening here. That's a minor point. The major point is the dead will be resurrected at the end of time. Now, Paul says we shall all be changed. Now, there's a couple of options what Paul means when he says we. He could mean, option number one, we Christians, which allows for a long time before the last trumpet Or it could mean Paul and the Corinthians, and that can't be for a long time before the last trumpet because Paul and the Corinthians aren't going to live but a generation or so. Now, if Paul was expecting Jesus to come back and all the bodies of the world, the dead bodies to be resurrected before he was dead, well, then Paul was very, very wrong. Would he not be right? The NIV Study Bible says that Paul was living in expectation of Jesus' physical return. He didn't know for sure that Jesus was going to come back physically, but he expected it. I'm not so sure that he was wrong. I'm not so sure that he wasn't thinking about it a long time in the future, whenever it would be. We don't know. I don't know. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 and 54. For this corruptible, talking about this corruptible body, must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal is clothed with immortality, again, it's talking about corruptible immortal mortal bodies, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Paul is talking about the body that is laid in the ground at your funeral. It's corruptible, but it becomes immortal. It becomes incorruptible. Corruptible means it it putrefies, it, de- it degenerates, it smells, it stinks. But hey, when we're clothed with incorruptibility, our bodies are never going to stink again. And the body is planted mortal, The body is clothed. It says this mortal, meaning this mortal body, must be clothed with immortality. Clothed means that it's just completely covered with immortality. It's never going to die. Well, that's good news. And Paul quotes something that is written. He says, the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Because when death is beaten, that's the final enemy of mankind is death. And it's gone. And we are totally victorious. The scripture that says that is Isaiah, that Paul is quoting, is Isaiah 25, 8, where Isaiah says this, he will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, that's some good news there, folks. No more death. No more crying at funerals. It's going to be over. Almost all the commentators say that Paul is quoting this verse, NIV, Note, John Gill, Adam Clark, Jameson Fawcett, and Brown i say that Paul is quoting Isaiah here. God will destroy death forever. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Now, when Paul says we will be clothed with immortality, he uses the metaphor of putting on clothes. He does the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 3. Indeed, we groan in this body desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven. See, to put it on, put on our dwelling from heaven. Since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. So when our spiritual, our spirit, spiritual beings are in heaven without a body i've watched enough near death experiences people can see spiritual beings that, are, that are, people can see the immaterial part of man and it looks just like the material part except there's no flesh and blood but that state is said to be naked according to paul it's going to that that spiritual that ghostly type body that phantom of a body if you will will be clothed with flesh and blood immortal flesh and blood we're not going to be found naked now as most people that I know of, and that you know of, most people don't like to go outside in public naked. Just, people just don't like to do that. Every now and then you find some weirdo that'll do it. But most people don't like to do it. And that shows just as people naturally desire to have clothes on when they go outside, same thing in heaven. We naturally want to have a resurrected body. So these people who are going around saying Christians aren't going to have a resurrected body. They are teaching something that is perfectly hideous and horrible and blasphemous and gangrenous and heretical. First Corinthians 15, 55, Paul continues, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now, Paul is quoting Hosea here, Hosea verse, chapter 13, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol, Sheol's Hebrew for death, or the grave. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Now, I've said this before. You go to funerals, you hear this verse all the time. Paul is not talking about death not having any sting while we're here in this life. He's talking about when you're resurrected from the grave. That's when death's not going to have any sting because death will be swallowed up in victory. not going to be any tears in our eyes. God's guys are going to wipe the tears out our eyes, and when that happens, there's no sting from death. We don't have to worry about it anymore. But while we're still here in this body, we have to look forward to it by faith and hope and confident expectation. Notice as I quoted as I noticed that Paul quoted from Hosea thirteen fourteen. Hosea thirteen fourteen doesn't have death where is your victory, but first Corinthians fifteen fifty five says death where is your victory. So that's a little bit different. Paul is quoted from the Septuagint, and as Adam Clark says, due to translation or textual corruption problems, the Septuagint is not exactly like the Hebrew text. This is a common phenomenon. Nothing to worry about. The problem is death has no victory, death has no sting. Now Adam Clark expounds further on this idea of sting. I just take it, you know, death doesn't have any emotional impact on you that's painful. But Clark says that the word there, death has no sting, derives from a dagger or goad like the driver of oxen. Death is irritating and urging people on to death. So death, where is your goad? You're not going to urge me on to despair and to death. For example, a disease could be a goad that's urging you on to death. Well, maybe. I don't know. I just like to take it as death, you hurt, but you're not going to hurt when you are swallowed up in victory. When you are swallowed, when death, you are destroyed in defeat, and we end up victorious. 1 Corinthians 15:56. Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. I like this verse because in that one short verse, Paul basically summarizes Romans 6, 7, and 8. Here's the way the causation runs. Law stirs up sin in us, and sin produces death in us. So it goes law going from left to right. Law produces sin, and sin produces death. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, sin is goading us, bringing us into death's power. That's right. And law is creating sin. All right, let's read Romans 5.12 to see how sin produces death, how the sting of death is sin. Sin causes us to be stung by death, if we can put it that way. Therefore, Romans 5:12. Therefore, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. So you see, death came through sin. Sin was the thing of death. Sin is that which causes death to have its sting. All right? Well, if sin produces death, how about the last part of the verse? The law produces sin. And as I go through this, we need to remember something that's very important. Trying to keep the law does not free us from sin. In fact, trying to keep the law in our own flesh increases sin in our life, which is exactly the opposite of what Christian legalists would have you to believe. I heard the other day, a friend of mine was had another friend that I don't know, and that other friend was talking about he had a great spiritual experience. And he said, you know, every time you keep a moral law, you've had you, that's, that's a great spiritual experience. No, it's not. There's lots of non-Christians that keep moral laws all the time. They don't kill, cheat, lie, steal, rape, murder. But that doesn't mean they're close to God. I mean, you get close to Jesus, you're going to be moral. You're not going to cheat, steal, lie, and so forth. But it's different. It's talking about mortifying the deeds of your flesh by the Holy Spirit, not by the law. The law does not create holiness. What the law does is create sin. The power of sin is the law. In other words, the law exercises its power and creates sin. I've got two of my favorite scriptures to point that out, Romans 6:14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Do a logical transformation on that and the verse reads like this. For sin will have dominion over you since you are under law, but not under grace distribute the knots out in a different place and it's a little bit clearer. You want to get under the mastery and the power of sin? Get under the law. Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So there you have law arousing sin, which produces death. Romans 7, 5 is basically another way of saying 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Law produces sin, produces death. Let me emphasize this again in Romans 7, 5. Paul is referring to sinful passions, and he says they were, quote, aroused by the law, unquote. The law arouses sinful passions in us. When your mama tells you not to put your hand in the cookie jar, the first thing that happens is the sinful passion arises in your heart, and you go stick your hand in the cookie jar. Now, I ask you this. The power of sin is the law. Reconcile that with the way reformers talk about the law. The law is the third. The third use of the law leads us to holiness and sanctification. How many times have you heard John Calvin and his fellow reformers say that? Uh, J.P. Ryle, 1870s, Calvinist bishop of the Church of England. I've read his book. And there's a ton of other ones, too. Law, 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 law. All they can talk about is law. And I'd like to reconcile that with the power of sin is the law. Now, the Reformers aren't dumb. They make distinctions here, and they can explain this away, but they have to spend so much time and talent creating this theological house of cards, this complex Goldberg theological machine that you can't see the beginning to the end and how it works, in order to get around the plain meanings of the word. And it's just simple to say, hey, we're free from the Mosaic law, and now we're under the law of Christ and his Holy Spirit, using the words of Jesus and the scriptures and, and what the apostles said. That's how we order our lives now, and that's how we become holy. We do not try to keep the law because the law creates sin in us. By the way, I want to mention one other thing that the Reformers do, covenant theologians do about this. They say the power of sin is the law. They divide the Mosaic law up into three parts, judicial, ceremonial, and moral. Well, it doesn't say here, of course, which part is which, because the Bible never does. But let's assume that's the moral law. The power of sin is the moral law? Really, I thought we were supposed to be keeping the moral law, and the moral law was supposed to make us holy. Well, it can't be that. Okay, well, let's try something else. Let's try the judicial and the ceremonial law. And the power of sin is the judicial and memorial law. Really? That was for the Old Testament Jews. The New Testament Christians, as the Reformers often say, we're not under the judicial and the and the ceremonial law. So how could this apply to us Christians today? The power of sin is, is the judicial and moral aspects of the Mosaic Law? That doesn't even make sense in the abstract, but especially doesn't make sense considering that it's referring to Christians, and the Christians aren't under the judicial and moral parts of the law according to the Reformers. Either way, how do they explain this? I'd have to do some more research. I'm sure they've got a way, but it's not right. We go now to 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, our victory is not in the law. The law leads to sin, which leads to death. What's the, what's the contrary to the opposite of law? is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we get our victory. Death gets its victory from the law. Christians get our victory from Jesus. Christ and the law is contrasted in verse 56, the verse we just read. Well, Verses 56 and 57 contrasts Christ and the law. The law is referred to in verse 56. Verse 57 talks about Christ. Since Christians are no longer the law, and thus we're free from the power of sin and the sting of sin and the victory of death, we're free from all that. Now when Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory, what victory is he referring to? Remember he said death is swallowed up in victory by his quoting Hosea. In verse 55, that's the victory he's talking about. Death, where is your victory? then in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. So death doesn't have a victory, but we have the victory. And what is that victory? We're going to be resurrected from the dead. And we're going to be victorious over death, which of course means we're also victorious over the sin, which causes death. He's referring to the resurrection of the body. Verse 54, he said death has been swallowed up in victory. Victory for us. Victory in the resurrection of the body. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, there he goes again, calls those Corinthians not only his brothers, but his dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, their work in the Lord would be in vain if there was no resurrection of the dead because people would die and that'd be the end of them. Well, what's the point of risking your life for something like that and working so hard all day? Paul has already talked to them about the futility that is engendered by a lack of belief in the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. Your faith is empty and worthless if you don't believe that Christ has been raised. That resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So, you want to make Paul's preaching worthless? You want to make your faith worthless? Don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, notice Paul tells the Corinthians... Be steadfast, immovable. And what he means by immovable is don't believe these false teachers who are saying there's no resurrection of Christ or no resurrection of the Christians, whatever it was they were saying. Be immovable against that. Don't listen to them. And then he says always excel in the Lord. Excel? Boy, this is after all the terrible stuff that have already related to you, what they've done. That's excelling? Well, they had a long way to get to that excelling in the Lord's work. And Paul says, he's saying here, get at it. Get after it. Excel in the Lord's work. He didn't give up on them. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have shown that the resurrection of the body is not a ghost. The mortal body that is planted at the funeral is raised immortal, incorruptible, imperishable, and it's the same person that was buried. We have talked in our last audio that about the nature of this resurrection body. It will not have sex. It may or may not eat. I would suspect if it does, it's only optional. I don't think it's necessary to keep us alive because how can the body die? It's immortal. You say, oh, I'm not going to eat and kill my body. You can't kill something that's immortal. But at any rate, we are finished with Paul's thorough discussion of the resurrection of the dead in chapter 15. And our next chapter we will take up, that's chapter 16, we will take up Paul's famous 4 province collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And we'll start talking about money finance in the next chapter i hope you stay tuned for that audio and i hope you enjoyed this one